Well, good morning. This is the second time John DeBolt has been here. Uh, hopefully you guys saw him last time. Um, it's a little special today, though, because he knows we have called a pastor. Uh, so there's been rumblings at work all week that he might really let us have it this time. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Because he knows there's little, you know, little possibility of him being asked to come back anytime soon. So we'll see what we get. But uh, it's, it's my honor to introduce to you to uh, Mr. John DeBolt. Now I just I, I can tell all the unfiltered stories about John Skidmore because I don't have to worry about being awkward in a couple weeks or so if I had to come back. Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> Thank you all for having me here today. I, I enjoyed that worship time together. I enjoyed Bellevue style. I heard him say that. I was like, oh, what does that mean? <laughs> that was really cool. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for leading that today. I enjoyed worshiping here. Um, thank you for having me back. I enjoyed getting the opportunity last time to share with you all. Um, it was a it was a fun time there. And as I was thinking about and praying about what to speak upon this week, it turned out that in the end, it's almost like a sequel to that sermon. I was actually, it wasn't even intentional. I was going through and I was praying about what to speak about. And I was going through and getting my notes together. I was like, this kind of ties somewhat into what I was talking about last time. So if you feel that that's a, a sequel is what you're looking for, you can head right on out now. That's fine. We won't, doesn't matter. You can watch the live stream later if you'd like to. Um, last time I spoke on having a heart after God. And the example I was giving was uh, David. David, if we read through scripture, that man had a wonderful heart after God. And in the New Testament, we even talk about, they even talk about, they points back and say, David, man after God's own heart. Well, as I was thinking about and praying about this message and the topic I was going to be coming across, I started coming back to David's life. I started looking into David's life. This man who's after God's own heart, he also had some flaws. If you look into the life of David, you see some pretty jarring stories. And one of them we're going to talk about today here in just a few minutes. And if you would, you can go ahead and turn with your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And as you're turning there... Um, question for you. How many of you have a very special talent, skill, or an ability? I'm not asking you to come up and perform it. Don't worry. Some of you might be able to juggle with your feet. Who knows? All those neat little things. And uh, <laughs> you got America's Got Talent, Amer or Bellevue's Got Talent. I'm sure it'd be a really cool show down here. I'm going to share with you guys one of my talents. Um, it is not juggling. Do not worry. It is <laughs> one that I think over the years, it's a weird one to kind of mention, but it's a talent I think I have. I have a talent of learning from others' mistakes. Now that sounds weird and that sounds like I'm bragging because believe me, if you looked at my life, you would learn a lot from my mistakes. You'd be like, wow, he can write a whole book based upon his mistakes and the stupid decisions he's made. No way am I perfect or am I slow of mistakes myself, but there's a lot to learn from the mistakes of others. When I was, um, when I was younger, so, so I, you know, I've been a husband for 16 years now, and you can ask my wife later, she'll tell you whether or not I'm doing okay there, hopefully on the okay side. But I came from a home that it wasn't a whole lot of good marriage advice given on a regular basis. Um, my mom uh, had uh, two different husbands and poorly in both um, relationships there. And my stepdad, um, one thing I learned from him was not how to treat a lady, but often it was how not to. For example, we had one um, evening. So typically when we ate at home, it was microwave meals, takeout, or something you heat up in the oven. And that was the extent of our home cooked meals, usually. Well, one night, my mom went all out. 
Like she, she had the roast on throughout the day. She had potatoes and noodles and all the different fixings you'd have. And we actually, oddly enough for us, this was different for us, we ate around the kitchen table. We ate at the table and the food was on the table. Now this was, this was something big. Now we were all kind of surprised, making our way through, getting our plates. And my stepdad sat down. Now he'd been at work throughout the day. And at this point, he kind of leaned back, started looking at the meal. My mom was glowing. She was excited. She was ready for everyone to just to praise her for this amazing meal that was set before her. And as he's getting his plate, he stops, he leans back and he goes, you know what my favorite meal in the world is? Do you know that if I could have anything in the world, I would not pass it up. It was simply a bologna sandwich mayonnaise. Ah, you just can't beat that. And then he went and continued to get his, the rest of his food and plate there. And I remember looking over at my mom as the joy just drained from her face as she thought she was about to get this right here. This is the perfect meal. I'm so thankful for this. Nope, yeah, okay, we'll have this. I do like bologna sandwiches better though. And that was the extent of it. So disappointing in her. And I remember learning there, I was like, huh, when someone probably cooks a nice meal, you probably should compliment that meal opposed to what you would prefer to be eating at the exact moment. There's a lot to be learned from the mistakes of others. And um, there's a lot to be learned from our own mistakes too, but that's a different sermon. And if we don't learn from the mistakes of others, we're often going to fall into those same patterns, the same mistakes ourselves. And we're gonna look into, as I mentioned, Sam, first, uh, 2 Samuel 11. We're gonna, we're gonna read quite a few verses. I apologize, you're like, wow, there's so long of reading, I apologize. but. I can tell you right now, anything that I have to say here, this is the best part of it right here is coming from God's word anyhow. So we're going to start here in chapter 11 and reverse here in verse 1. In the springtime of the year, when kings normally go out to war, and I'm emphasizing that because there's, a, there's that's significant here, David sent Joab and the Israel army out to, find, out to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and they laid siege to the city of Reba. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, <clears throat> he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get, to get her, and, and, when he, and when she came to his palace, he slept with her. And she had just completed her purification rites after her menstrual period. And when they returned home later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. When David, then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked how Job and the army were um, getting along and how the, um, the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go home, relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he left the palace, but Uriah did not go home. He slept that night at the palace entry with the king's and with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked him, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night? You've been away for so long. Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may go and return to the armies. So Uriah stayed with Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him for dinner and got him drunk. And even though he couldn't get Uriah to go home with his wife, again he slept at the palace entrance at the, at the king's palace um, guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah at the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then pull back so that he may be killed. We're going to skip down a couple of verses into verse 22. What he said, what he asked to take place, 
took place. Uriah had died. Then Joab sent a messenger back to um, David. So the messenger went to Jerusalem to give the complete report. The enemy came out and came against us in the open fields, he said. As we chased them back to the city gates, the archers of the wall shot down out of us, and some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, Joab, tell Joab, do not be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this day once and then once again tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When, Joab, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her into his palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, and the Lord was dis, um, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So we're coming here now into chapter 12, just a couple little bit here, and then skipping down to the last couple of verses here. But in verse 1, So the Lord sent Nathan a prophet to tell David this story. There was two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one lamb that he had bought. And he raised a little lamb, and he knew, and he grew it with his children. That ate from the man's own plate and, plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to this poor man for the one that he stole and having, um, having, for having no pity. In verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. We skip down to a little bit of what, David, um, what Nathan told David would be taking place because of his sin. But in verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Father, thank you for the, the reading of your word. We thank you for the truths that we read in here. And Lord, help us to learn from this story and help us to draw closer to you through it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I encourage you this weekend, long weekend, you have a day off tomorrow. Take some time, read through 2 Samuel chapter 11, chapter 12, and then go and read into Psalm 51, which we'll be cutting into a little bit this morning. Let me give you the little bit of the cliff notes of this story. I know I read a lot there, but here's I'm going to give you the JDT version of the John DeBolt translation. It's not, it's, it's not inspired. It's not nearly as good as uh, anything else you read. But here we go. So in chapter 10, so let me set the stage here a little bit for you. Chapter 10, the Ammonites. The Ammonites, they have been a thorn in Israel's side for years, battling back and forth. They'd win some, Israel would win some. And finally, we're getting to a point where it's almost over. The Israelites are taking charge. They're ending this battle. They're getting rid of the Ammonites. They are sitting in a very high point of victory. These next few battles are going to be the end of the Ammonites and the battles they've been facing. Well, that's where they are in chapter 10. We come into chapter 11. Joab, who is um, David's head general, and just start reading a little bit about Joab. That dude is a, is a testy character. He has some interesting stories. Just I, I would laugh sometimes reading about this guy. Some of the some of the calls and decisions he makes quickly. He was wrapping up the battle, and during this time, it was very custom for the king to join in the battle. That was a common thing at this time of the year. This was the time of the year when this was happening. It was it was a warmer season, so the kings would travel with the crew, and they'd be a part of that. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. But David's not doing that. He's sitting back at the palace. As a matter of fact, he's actually taking a midday nap. And as David gets up from his nap, he's stretching and he's walking around his palace, meandering around, goes out onto the balcony or the roof, and he starts looking across the city. And that's when he saw her. 
Now this isn't something that should have been too unusual. Like this was a common practice of bathing rituals, how they would do it, that was on top of the house. So he saw her there. Now listen, the story could be over and we could say, David saw a woman bathing and he should not have seen this. And he looked away and this was the end of the story. David, the man after God's own heart. That's not where the story ends. David starts asking, who is this lady? Who is she? What's going on out here? And, and I love when the men come to him. They don't come to him like, dude, she is a gorgeous woman. She is beautiful, man. Let me tell you about, let me tell you about Bathsheba. No, you know how they respond? Yeah, that's Uriah the Hittite's wife. So he didn't get these guys like trying to talk her up or no. He's like, no, that's someone else's wife. Once again, great thought for the story to end. Like, okay, sorry, I was inquiring into something. Uh, not, my, not my area, stay away. Should be the end of the story. It's not. He then calls Bathsheba um, over to the palace, commits adultery. Once again, bad scenario. She's pregnant. This could have stopped the story. He could have realized, I've messed up. Uriah, I am sorry. Let me pay penance. Let me figure something out here. I messed up. So he calls him, but instead he tries to cover up his sin. He calls Uriah home. And like, Uriah, this dude is legit. Like he comes back here and like, he's everything that David used to be up to coming to this point in the story. As I'm sitting there reading the stuff that Uriah is telling him, this is who David used to portray, like, sound like. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Uriah. Uriah, he's not just some random soldier. So David would have known who Uriah was. David would have known who Uriah This wasn't just some guy like, oh, hey, who's that guy? Well, that's, guy's, that's so-and-so's wife. Oh, let me meet him. No, he knew who he was. Because back then they had, they had a group of people, and it's kind of cool. Like some of the old war stories, he had David's three. He had his major three generals who would go around and lead in these conquerors and these battles. And then he called, then there was called the 30. And they, they were called the 30, or they're also known as David's warriors. And Uriah was one of David's warriors. He was one of the elite soldiers throughout Israel. So David knew who he was. He was literally one of David's men. So he calls Uriah back and he's trying to persuade him, hey dude, go home, spend some time, relax, Netflix and chill, whatever it is, spend some time at home, be away from here for right now. Doesn't happen. He's like, no, no, listen, the Israelites, my fellow guys are sitting out in the fields. They're, they're, they're sleeping out on the grass. The Ark of the Covenant's in a tent right now. How can I go home and enjoy the pleasures of life when this is happening? David keeps pushing and pushing and trying and even gets a dude drunk in efforts to try to get him to go home. Never happens. So what does David do? Wow, man, I messed up. You're a good man. I'm sorry. Let me explain the situation. No. David literally writes a letter to Joab and has Uriah to deliver his own death sentence to the general. So he goes to Joab, and I'm sure Joab has seen everything by now. Like, read some of Joab, I already said that, but read some of Joab's stories. They're quite hilarious, but um, <laughs> in a funny way. Anyway, he goes, he gives this letter, and I'm sure Joab is reading. He's like, I've, he's heard so many different things from David. David's called him to go here, run here, do that. And he's reading this letter, and Uriah, who delivered it, and it's sealed letter, he's like, okay, pretty much make sure Uriah dies in this battle. So Joab, as a good soldier, okay, sure, folds it up, goes on to the next battle. And then he makes a strategic battle move that is against his character. He makes a poor decision. He goes through and he has Uriah, they're fighting and they're battling and Uriah's in the front of the lines this time. And he tells the dudes to back up and let Uriah die. It happens, it's a sad story. And then he sends a messenger back to David. Now you can tell by the writing here, Joab, even when he says like, he's like, hey, phrase it just this way. Cause he knows David's gonna be upset cause it was a poor decision. A lot of people died that day. So he says, hey, phrase it this way and make sure you point out how Uriah dies at the end. So he's, he's, he's cunning with his words and how he says it. He says it to David, and this is when we start getting a real glimpse of how far off David's gone. When he hears this story, 
And he hears about all these men who died in the battle, including Uriah. He goes, ah, well, you win some, you lose some. Try harder next time. And then moves it on from there. Once again, this should have shook him to the core. The, 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 the things we're reading about Uriah were, were all words that were described him back in the past. And then we hear of bold Nathan. Nathan, who, I tell you, this guy is a professional when it comes to things. If he just walked into that room and said, listen here, David, here's how you messed up. That might not have went well. But instead, he tells the story of the little lamb who was taken away from the master who loved that lamb like a child of his own. And then he ends it with, you are that man. And the story continues there as David comes to the full realization of his sin. There's so much to this story. There's so many different things that we could pull from this. But I want to share a couple simple truths with you. First off, two things that David did right. Excuse me. Two things that David did wrong, followed by two things that David did right. And then finally, what God did through the story and how God redeemed the story. First off, David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Have you been there before? The wrong place at the wrong time. At a spot where you knew you shouldn't have been and you stumbled in there anyhow. David dropped his guard. I mean, David, the man after God's own heart, went into cruise control and sat back and let life continue on without putting much thought into it. You read through First and Second Samuel. He regularly called upon the Lord. So many different times, people started coming to attack him. And he said, and what did we read? And David called upon the Lord. And David sought wisdom from the Lord. And David cried out to the prophets <coughs> and had them call out to the Lord with him. But this time, David did not inquire of the Lord. And how often do we do this? How often do we call out to God in the thick of battle? When the tough things are coming, when it's a very clear situation, we don't know what to do. God, help us. We need your direction. But when things are kind of cruising along on a normal level, do we call out to God and say, God, help me. Help me to continue to make the decisions that are pleasing to you. Oftentimes, too, the strongest time of temptation, believe it or not, comes after the greatest victories. After the greatest victories. So they, as I mentioned, the Ammonites, they're, they're, chapter 10, this is the next big battle that's about to take place. It's going to finally end this war and this struggle between them back and forth. And when everything starts coming up right and everything is going the way it should, it's easy to become lax and stop depending on God as much. You know, this happens in ministry. I have a really good friend. He's a missionary. He travels all across the world. And he actually is a missionary to missionaries. He goes across and helps them and they kick off their ministries and comes and encourages them. And he was talking to me not too long ago. And he was telling me, or he was talking to he was teaching in a, uh, when I was a place where I was at. And he was mentioning how his greatest time of temptation is when he's heading home after his missionary trips. Great victories, amazing things done, revivals, lives were changed, people were saved, but that is when he is overcome with temptation. So I encourage you in your time of life where things are going smoothly and going well, we continue to lean in and trust upon God. Not only did he change there in the wrong um, coming through those times, but this was the time when kings went to war. This is springtime. This is warmer, easier time to travel. Guess what? When it's cold and terrible and rainy and wet, the king stayed at home. But this was the time it was very accustomed the kings are supposed to be at war. For David not to join the army, and the fact that it was very clearly called out in the very beginning of chapter 12, it points to us that David was not where he was supposed to be. This was even brought into David. And David was at home at a time when kings were supposed to be out with their men. Be where God wants you to be. No, you may not always know exactly where you should be at that exact moment, but you're often going to know where you shouldn't be. And David knew that he shouldn't be here. 
Sometimes the biggest step that needs to be taken in our lives is simply to not be where you shouldn't be. If you're someone who's a recovering alcoholic and you're trying to get past this stage in life, maybe you shouldn't be going out to dinner at a bar. If you're someone who's a pornography addict and you're trying to overcome this part in your life, maybe you shouldn't be having unfiltered internet access alone. If you're a recovering overeater, maybe you shouldn't have your cabinets filled with unhealthy snacks. All right, I know shots fired here, I apologize. But there are times in life where we need to avoid, there are certain things that we shouldn't be doing we know God doesn't want in our lives. We can't be all that surprised when things go, when go, go poorly, when we set ourselves up for that. Next thing David did is he ignored the red flags in his life. There were warnings all along the way. His guard straight out, straight out from the beginning told him, this is, that, that's Uriah's wife. That is Uriah's wife. As soon as he asked about it, that is Uriah's wife. Uriah, he was exhibiting the characteristics that used to be a part of David's life. So many different things, red flags, should have stopped, shouldn't have happened. Uriah would not go back home. But you see, when you start to ignore flags, the red flags in your life, sin's going to take you further than you ever want to go. David abandoned his purpose. He stayed home. He then started focusing on his own desires. When temptation arose, he investigated further instead of saying, nope, this isn't for me and turning away. He deliberately sinned. He tried to cover up that sin by deceiving others, and he ended up committing murder to cover up his own sin. David became callous because of his actions. Look at his words in verse 25. Don't be discouraged. I mean, can you imagine that? Like literally people died because of his command, especially one person he called out. Don't be discouraged. This is the same man who shook to the very core just a few chapters earlier, just 10, 15 years earlier when, when Saul was chasing him down. And Saul was there, vulnerable. And David, he had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he simply cut off part of his robe. And David was cut to the core. I can't believe I did this. This was the Lord's anointed. How dare I do such a thing like this? And you go from that part of David who wants to do so much right to this part of David who casually has a man murdered. David had a glaring blind spot in his life. Do you? Do I? Do we have blind spots? It's an odd question to ask. Um, because typically, if you have a blind spot, you don't know about it. That's kind of the definition of what a blind spot is. But if you and I were honest, and if we had a conversation, and we we're one-on-one, -on -one, and if I asked you, you were, if you were going to fall into sin, if you were going to fall away and, and into sin and, and go down a path that you know you ought not to, what area would that most likely be? I'm not asking anyone to raise their hands today. But know that area in your life. Know what that area is for you. Reinforce it with prayer with accountability, with people who are going to chalk into your life and say, hey, dude, you're kind of going down a path you shouldn't. Hey, I noticed a couple things. You seem to be going back into areas that you've said you didn't want to be a part of your life anymore. Are you okay? Is everything all right? There are sometimes red flags that will pop up in your life. Stop ignoring them. Listen to the advice of those around you. Recently, I had five different friends within a couple months come to me and say, John, you're doing too much. You're going way too busy. You're accepting too many things, and you're, 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 I, we can tell there's something wrong. When five friends come to you and say something, you should probably listen to them. So my wife and I had a reevaluation time. We sat down and we went through our agenda. Like, okay, here's some things that we need to start cutting out. Here's some things that we need to refocus in on. Here's some things that just don't matter, and we're spending too much time on. And we started rearranging some things in our priorities in life. And this is something that, thankfully, I had some friends who were bold enough to come and say that to me. And I heard an old phrase that says, when you, when you wear rose-colored glasses, red flags just look like flags. 
And I'm telling you, there is times in our lives when there are some very glaring red flags that you shouldn't be going down a path. But when you really want to go down that path and everything else just looks wonderful and we ignore the major issues there. I told my kids this and I hope that they, they still believe this to the day. So there's going to be a day when you're coming to me and I'm going to tell you, this is a bad decision. You shouldn't do this. You're going out and you're in your mind. You think, no, dad doesn't know what he's talking about. He's old and decrepit. He can't make rash decisions anymore. Please listen, because there's probably a chance that maybe you're blinded by some things going on in life. Pray that God reveals your blind spots to you, either through the spirit and self-reflection of prayer or maybe through a godly friend. The Memorial Day weekend of fitting that we talk about in World War I, there's fighter pilots. There's a phrase that you've heard probably, said, I got your six. There's a phrase that went around normal back then where they would tell one another, hey, they're flying. They had a blind spot behind them they couldn't see. So it's a very common phrase was, I got your six. That meant I was going to be behind you. I was going to be watching your back. Nowadays, this term is used throughout the military as loyalty and cooperative found throughout their culture. This is a level of love and dedication that should be even stronger amongst Christians, that we have each other's back. We read in James 5.20, let him know that he who's turned a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Be that friend. Be that person who can stand up and say, hey, I love you. And in God's grace, I want to tell you, no, you need to change something here. And then we start talking about the things that David did right. Two things David did right. The first one leads us right into us. And David finally accepted godly counsel. What did this mean for Nathan? Let's think about this here. So we just think Nathan casually walked in here, told a story and walked out. No, David had been acting way out of character doing some very wrong, sinful things. He very easily, and we read through, go keep reading through Kings. You, you, don't, you don't talk back to a king like that. But Nathan walked in there. David easily could have said, that's it, you're executed. I've killed a bunch of other guys. Let's continue the pattern. You're gone. But no. Nathan, was, uh, Nathan came out with the exact words from God that, he, that needed to be said, and he dare not miss out on that calling. One of the most loving things Nathan could do was go to David and call out his sin. So think of this point already. At this point in David's life, his reputation is completely tarnished beyond human repair. David will have a black eye, a glaring fault. But it could have been much worse if David had continued down this pattern. God redeemed a story which we're going to talk about. But it had been much, much worse if Nathan hadn't been faithful. So what do we learn to this? One, listen when godly counsel is given to you. Make it a habit of asking for wisdom from those close to you and those who are honest, truthful friends. Now listen, if you want to do something stupid and go buy a crazy thing that you want to buy, don't go to that one friend who's going to be like, yeah, dude, let's get it. Let's go and um, let's have a fun time. You'll find that. You know there's that friend who will do that. If you're looking for advice to do the thing you already want to do, there's going to be that friend you're going to go to. Um, but if you want someone who's going to be honest with you, find that person who loves God and who's going to be transparent with you. Even when they tell you, hey, that's not a good decision. You probably shouldn't do this. Um, be, um, but um, right with that point, don't, don't just ask for counsel because that's super annoying too when you ask people, hey, what should I do here? And you go, okay, thank you for telling me. I'm going to completely ignore you and I'm going to do what I want. But be someone who if you ask for counsel, take it to heart. Make the necessary changes that you need to make and put them up the proper barriers. And then sometimes, and this can even be the more difficult part, be the Nathan. Be the person who can give godly counsel when given the opportunity. This needs to be done, though, in the right spirit and at the right time. 
needs to be humble. You come to that person and say, guess what? You're wrong. You've messed up. Let me tell you the 10 ways you can be better. Be humble. Not an I told you so moment. Not on Facebook. Let's not post that on there. Let's just do that privately. The man who, um, there's an old phrase I love, the man who goes all day with his fly down has no friends. Don't be, um, be that person you can go to someone who can say, hey, there's a problem here, buddy. I care about you. You need to know about this. I have a close group of, group of friends who I'm confident they're going to call me out if I continue, if I head down a path I shouldn't. And I pray that I have courage to do the same with them. Last point there with David is on that on David had authentic repentance. We're going to look here into Psalm 51 here. Psalm 51. So I'm going to read that. If you ever see the beginning of Psalm, the beginning of a Psalm usually tells you a setting it was written to, who it was written for, what it was written about. And we're going to actually read the beginning part of that in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 for the choir director, a Psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Imagine that psalm being handed out to everybody. Like, hey, here you go. This is the one after David did the thing we all knew he did. Um, we go here in verse 1. David's cry, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from sin. For I recognize in my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You have proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. We skip down here into verse 7. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt and create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Not a matter of length, length or intensity here, but it was a realization of fault. David reflected upon what he did. Didn't make excuses or sugarcoated. He said, against you and you alone have I sinned. That's not entirely accurate. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba, as well as others, as well as the country and the mother men. But he came to the root of the problem. The root of the problem was against God, a God he had sinned against. He earnestly prayed for forgiveness, not mustering up emotions, but as a change of action and behavior. This prayer would have meant very little if we'd have read this prayer and we know that David continued to go down this life of philandering and doing things he knew as he shouldn't. But there was repentance in the life of David. Which takes us to our last point. God's redemption. God is redeeming the circumstances. And we get that from Matthew 1.6. Did this sin affect David for the rest of his life? Yes. It sure did. It's really kind of sad to be read through the next chapters. It affected the lives of those around him. David and Bathsheba, they lost their son. David would, or lost the baby. David would never be looked upon again by the people of Israel as he was once looked at. That happened. Their view of him is going to change forever. In the very next chapter, chapter 13, you read some very sad, sad stories. You read about the horrible actions between Amnon and Tamar and the different stories of his children that they learned from examples of seeing their father's terrible example before them in this scenario. Very sad things continue to happen. There are consequences of our sins. There are. Even forgiveness. And thank God for forgiveness. There is forgiveness, and God will forgive us. But there are things that are, put, that are often put into place because of our sins. But two of my favorite words ever put together, but God. God redeemed David's future. In Matthew 1, 6, we read, And Jesse begot David the king of um, uh, David the king, David the king begot Solomon by her whom had been the wife of Uriah. 
um, through this mistake, ultimately, and if you read that in Matthew 1, 6, let me tell you the circumstance of what we're walking into. This is the lineage of Christ. This is the lineage of Christ. So through this mistake, through this terrible action, the things that was not God's plan, and clearly God did not want to take place, God redeemed it and ultimately brought the Savior of our world, Jesus Christ, through this lineage. Lineage. In Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect or work out exactly the way as it should have. But God is in the business of redemption. And guess what? No matter how bad this mistake of your past was, God can use it and redeem it and make something beautiful out of it if we just let Him. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, and I got a quote of his up here. It's one of my favorite quotes that I have hanging up on my desk. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Let there be a but God moment in your life. No matter where your life has taken you, no matter what mistakes you may have walked into, no matter how far you may have strayed, no matter if you're at that point where you made, you've made the look or you're at the point where you've murdered somebody. I hope not. I really hope not. Um, we can talk to you about it. So, But um, if no matter how you are on that journey, stop and turn back to God. Call upon Him and let Him redeem your story. There's no story that's too far that God can't come back and turn something beautiful out of it. So as we close here, I have a couple takeaways. A couple takeaways that you, I hope you walk away from and you think about. One, know where God wants you to be. And don't be where you know He doesn't want you to be. If there are certain spots in your life that God says, I don't want this in your life. I don't want this app on your phone. I don't want you traveling to this place. I don't want you around this person. Listen to that. Take heed. Two, be aware of your areas of weakness. Watch for the red flags and take heed of them as well. If you see those areas in your life where something's popping up and you know this is something's not right here, sense, sense the pricking of the Spirit in your life and start making the necessary changes as those come along. And you have people who come, um, and which comes to the third point, both receive godly counsel as well as give, and, give when given the opportunity. If you have someone in your life who's come to you and said, hey, listen, there's something wrong here and I'm worried about you, take a moment to listen to them. There's a chance they might be wrong. There's that, 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 that happens. But if they're really bold enough to come to you to that, take a moment and listen to what's being said and reflect upon it and pray about it. And then when given the opportunity, if you see that friend, that brother who's making those poor decisions, come to them and say, hey, through God's love, I want to tell you something, man. I love you. I care about you. And I, want to, I don't want you to fall down a path. Maybe I've went to my past. And four, if there is sin in your life, allow God to forgive you. I'll accept his re- forgiveness and then, his redeem- and then let him redeem the messes that you've made in life. Put your faith in Him, and He can do wonderful things through our messed up, messed up stories. So thank you once again for getting a chance to share with you. I believe we have a worship song coming up next. <laughs>